Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. leads us into step two, which is acknowledging the specific history and realness of my suffering. And Paul Tripp, as he was reflecting on the loss of his grandmother, he he gives a, a very telling statement. He says, we kissed her cheek and we straightened her sheets as if she were still there. We simply didn't know how else to act. And I read that, and I just hate the powerlessness of it. It, It's not just that suffering is painful. It insults us. It shows us our weakness. It shows us our limits. And, And oftentimes when we hear grief, we think some of the classic stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance... And we go, I'm not, I'm not in denial. I know this happened. But denial isn't, or at least usually, isn't the refusal to acknowledge a historical fact as if we're creating conspiracy stories about what really happened and how our loved one's going to come back to us. It's much more just this sense of stuckness. It's not knowing how to respond in a world that was changed by a single event. Yet, it's not so much that I'm willfully blind, just going, I'm not going to look at this, I'm not going to acknowledge it, as much as I just feel emotionally and relationally paralyzed. And I don't know what to do with it. And Wright and Bob Kellerman both help us see a bit of of what denial is and isn't. Uh, H. Norman Wright says, Denial is used to block the unthinkable, but it brings with it fear of the unknown, since you are denying the reality of what happened. As denial lessens, the pain begins to settle in, and as it does, the fear of the unknown diminished. And initially, that that doesn't sound like relief, because progress is... Fear subsiding and pain increasing. But it's almost as if when you sustain a major injury and you get hit and you can look at it and you go, that's going to hurt. And at the moment it's just kind of numb and overwhelming. And that's why Bob Kellerman says, denial is a common initial response to grief. He goes on to say, I believe that this initial response can be a grace of God allowing our bodies and physical brains to catch up and to adjust. Um, and, and sometimes we hear those early stages and we think as if those things are bad. Uh, and again, m- most of this is very natural. Uh, I'm going to give you some descriptions of denial here. Some of them uh, are more healthy, some of them are less. Uh, 
one of the simplest forms of denial is when I still use present tense verbs. When I talk about what they like instead of what they liked. And then I catch myself and I wince or maybe I blush because I'm embarrassed. Or maybe I, I wake up and it's at some point later in the day that it hits me that they're gone. It may be as simple as I reach over and they're not there. It may be I walk down the hall and I start preparing bre- breakfast and I realize I need one less bowl for cereal than I thought. But it just hits me and at some point it's fresh. Sometimes it's the resisting the sadness that would come with the loss. And as we talked about, initially that's normal. But sometimes that numbness transitions from natural to intentional. We begin to refuse to feel. And the problem there is that emotions don't compartmentalize. I can't take grief or sadness and just say, I'm not going to feel that. And my other emotions like joy and love, peace, anxiety, and hope function the way that they're supposed to. And so acknowledging the specific history of my loss means that I begin to feel those emotions that come with it. Another way that I can participate in denial is when I focus exclusively on helping others who are grieving. And at first, this one seems like a double win. I get to shield myself from what's going on, and I get to help other people, and that's a good thing, right? And it kind of sort of works for a little while until at some point months down the road, my world falls apart, and nobody, including me, understands why, because my loss was so long ago. And now I'm forced to face the pain not knowing why and with really nobody who knows how to support me or comfort me. And this is one of those things even with children. Oftentimes with children, they they either respond by withdrawing or acting out or becoming a miniature adult. And if you ask me which of those three is the most unhealthy, it's the child who begins to respond as a miniature adult. Because the child who acts out gets help. People talk to him. They come towards him. The child who withdraws, people come towards him. They try to comfort him. The child who acts like a miniature adult, everybody praises and affirms him for being so strong. He's not prepared for that. Another way that we participate in denial is if we use sleep or food or drugs or activities or relationships to distract us. Uh, from the grieving process. And this is where major life imbalances or addictions begin to enter life at the point of grief. And denial mutates into a lifestyle predicated upon escaping the unpleasant. And these are things that right now we just kind of throw up the yellow flag and say be aware of that. Uh, We'll come back to these things at a later, later part in our grief journey. Uh, But Winston Smith, uh, as he's giving us guidance on how to acknowledge, he says part of the grieving process is putting your loss into words. Talk to a friend or a family member about your grief. If you're not ready to talk to someone, make a list of the different ways you're grieving. 
Go ahead and remember the good times. Grieve for the dreams that never came true. Allow yourself to feel the emotions and sadness and put it into words. As you do this, remember that God is listening to you. And here, I would say don't get overwhelmed by that quote. Because if I place myself in the position of one who's grieving and I look at that quote, I think, you want me to do all of that? And I would simply say that is what this entire material is about. is to provide a structure and a framework, both in terms of questions and process, but also in terms of surrounding you with relationships that that is the kind of thing that you can begin to go through. And in the second step of the material, one of the exercises that we'll invite you to do is to begin to make a list of all the facts of your loss. All of the events and things that contributed to it. And if I could imagine myself as one who had lost my wife, and I were going to make this list, I would start at the very beginning of our first blind date, and then our second blind date, uh, and all the things that we learned along the way, of the great times that we had together, the struggles. And, And as I was making that list, chances are most of the things that I would be writing would sound like me. I knew them. They felt like me. They belonged to me. They were me. But as I made that list, chances are I would come to a point where I was writing down facts and I wouldn't dispute the fact that they were true, but they became much more facts on a page than they did part of my story. I would pass a true-false test, but I just didn't relate to them in the same way. And that becomes the part where I haven't really acknowledged this as part of my story. I haven't assimilated it into my sense of identity yet. And that's not something where I go, I've been bad, I should have done that, and I haven't. But it's simply me seeing that part in the journey where I am embracing these things as part of my story. Now, an exercise like that will hurt. And that's why I appreciate the words of Tim Keller. He's talking about Jesus uh, when he wept. He says, when Jesus weeps, we see that he doesn't believe that the ministry of truth, telling people how they should believe and that they should turn to God, or the ministry of fixing things, is enough. Does he? No. He is also a proponent of the ministry of of tears. And and oftentimes as we make a list like that exercise that I was just talking about and it began to hurt, we would think, am I doing this right? Because surely I'm not. This feels more painful to acknowledge the specific history of my loss. And we would say, yes, we are doing it right. And tears are a big part of this journey. And And we're not going to get an answer to grief. Because oftentimes we want to figure grief out. 
We want to turn it into an intellectual exercise as if it was a riddle we could solve. And it becomes this intellectual quandary. And that's one of the ways that we try to treat grief at a distance. But it's not a riddle to solve. It's a part of my life story to assimilate and to continue to live. Uh, And here, uh, I think I might use the parallel... Uh, oftentimes I'll be doing marriage counseling and I'll have a husband that every time he, he listens to his wife, he just wants to fix it. And one of the things that I've encouraged in that situation is, sir, if when your wife talks to you, if you would listen to her like you were taking a prayer request, that your goal at that point was just to thoroughly understand what she was saying Not because you felt like it was your responsibility to remedy, but because she was entrusting you with that information that you could clearly take it to God on her behalf. Listen to her like you were taking a prayer request. And as we are in that role of helping and coming alongside those who are grieving and they are in the midst of that highly repetitive process, and they're saying these facts and events over and over again because they know that they're true, they just don't feel like they're assimilated and part of their story yet. Oftentimes, the best thing that we can do is to listen uh, like we're taking a prayer request. Because when he says the ministry of tears, in many ways, if you want to know what the difference between a cliche is, or a platitude in words that are truly helpful, oftentimes it's not the content of speech. It's whether or not I feel like you're moved by me being hurt, whether you have joined me in my grieving process. Because the most valuable thing that we have to offer to someone when, we, when they are grieving is not our words, but our presence. Because they feel alone. They feel uncertain about what things are dependable, what things are real, what things they can count on. And our words won't calm that fear. But our caring presence that says, I'm here, I'm willing to listen. Your tears won't scare me away. Your questions won't make me so uncomfortable that I avoid you. I'm with you. That is the most precious thing that we can give. Yet, um, Walter Wangeren gives one of the more uncomfortable parts of acknowledging. He says, death doesn't wait to the end of our lives to meet us and to make an end. Instead, we die a hundred times before we die. And all the little endings on the way are like slowly growing echo of the final bang before the final bang takes place. And there we see that that rarely do we face a single loss at a time. Even if we're facing one loss, it has so many different pieces and facets and significance about it that it can feel like a dozen different losses wrapped up in one. And over the course of our life, we lose more and more things. And it makes us question whether love is really worth it. Whether vulnerability is really safe. And 
And this is why we put in the seminar packet the grief evaluation. It, it looks at nine or ten different facets of that grief experience that you can go through. It looks at denial, anger, fear, loneliness, life disruption, health impact, identity transition, the desire to escape, suicidal thoughts, uh, and even post-traumatic stress. Um, one of those things that with many traumatic losses that gets looked over in the grieving process is that grief itself can be very traumatic. And, and as you look at, as you use that instrument, one of the things that I would encourage you to, to think about as you do that is that what you're going to get is a point in time reading. You're not going to get a look at that and go, okay, this is my personality or this is where I'm at. You're going to get, this is where I'm at right now. Because again, we talked about how repetitive and cyclical that grief can be. But where I hope that is beneficial is that it gives you the ability to communicate that with somebody else. That is, each of those areas has about six or seven different questions that allows you to get your mind around what that would be like and that that's connected with grief. It gives you a way that you, if it helps you to point to a piece of paper and say, this is what I'm going through. This is where I'm struggling. This is why it hurts right now. And to be able to communicate that to another person. Now at this point, uh, I'll, I'll admit it's awkward at this acknowledge phase because I feel like I've put a lot more on the table than I know what to do with. And I often feel stupid or ignorant or like a child because I don't know what to do with it. I feel pressured to give answers. I feel pressured to give answers if I'm the friend sitting alongside of you. I feel pressured to say something that lets you off the hook when you don't know what to say to me. But it's at this phase that I would simply remind you that our presence means more than our words ever will. And so let's take a break here. Uh, we'll take about a five-minute break, uh, and then we'll come back uh, in the next segment, and we will hit uh, steps three, four, and five.